0: Dr. Batara, what is music made of?
1: It's uh, it's a pretty big question. <laughs> um, if you think of music as having to have a melody and a rhythm, then you need both of those components. But it could also just be a rhythm. It could be only drums, uh, or you could have just the melody, and have you know the notes be too long and too spread apart for someone to perceive any sort of rhythm in it, but you would still consider it to be music.
0: So basically, m- melody and rhythm. Yeah. And then each of those could be broken down into to various components.
1: The pieces of a melody are individual notes. You put them together in some order, and if you get them in the wrong order, it will sound strange, it won't make any sense. Uh, But then if you rearrange them and put them into this pleasing order that for some reason our brains like, then we call it a melody.
0: You mentioned how it makes sense when a certain melody is played, the notes come in a certain order and our brains like it. Uh, What do we know about uh, how our brains listen or how our brains hear melodies, how we how we form that liking reaction or, or disliking?
1: It's kind of like a language that we learn over the course of our lifetimes. So you're exposed to this music from very early on, and over time you learn that this is how it's supposed to sound, and these are the particular notes that are supposed to go together. And some notes you learn that they don't happen so often together, and other notes you learn that they do happen a lot together, and eventually you form a liking for those notes that are supposed to happen more often together. So that's the, that's the learned component to it. And there's also an innate part, um, just because of the way that our ears are made. So if two notes are too close together, so their frequencies are just not enough hertz apart, then they're gonna interact in our ears and sort of interfere with each other. And this is unpleasant, and we call this dissonant. That's how it sounds when these frequencies are are sort of doing bad things in our ears. Even infants, I think two months old, really, really young infants prefer to listen to consonant sounds rather than dissonant sounds. So they like melodies and music that doesn't have these notes that are interacting in, in these bad ways in our ears.
0: Okay I see is and and is there a cultural variation would say you're in France would someone in France maybe have a different a different way of experiencing those those consonant and dissonant notes uh, that they've learned since birth versus someone who grew up in the United States or in Asia or in Africa?
1: The consonants and dissonance is, seems to be pretty universal. It's not something that's really dependent on culture uh, but there are definitely other aspects of music that are dependent on what kind of music you grew up with. Between France and the US, it's going to be pretty similar because in I mean a lot of our classical music in the US comes from France, right? We've developed our ears based on this European music. But I think maybe when we hear certain types of music from Indonesia or from other places in Eastern Asia, they sound odd. It's like we just can't understand it. And that's because we've grown up in this Western European, North American musical culture.
0: So we've been talking a lot about melody and and notes, um, and I want to change gears, and let's talk a little bit about the the rhythm of music, the timing. How does rhythm affect the way that we perceive music?
1: Overall, there's the tempo or the speed. If it's really fast, it's going to be really energetic, really arousing. It's going to make you want to... I don't know, get up and move and that's why dance music is always at a specific speed, but it makes it really easy to dance to, right? Because there's nothing unexpected. You know what's going to happen and you can sort of become a part of this.
0: So, how does the rhythm and the melody of a piece of music combine to uh to make it catchy? You know, we're talking about a, a theme song contest on this show and uh we, we're, we're hoping to get music that, that grabs listeners' attention and really makes them want to hear what comes next.
1: You have to find a balance between being too predictable and not predictable enough. You have to find the exact right amount of predictability in the music. So it's like this inverted U-shaped curve. At the bottom, or on the, I guess the bottom left side of this inverted U, you have maybe the too easy kind where it's just too repetitive, it's the same thing over and over again, and it's not interesting. And then on the other side at the bottom, you have whatever it is that is too crazy, and no one can understand. And then in the middle, people end up at this perfect level where they know what to expect sometimes, but are sometimes surprised.
0: Do you have uh, any suggestions that that might be tailored to the themes of a science show? Are there ways that that music could convey that feeling uh, or or the emotions that people might associate with with science?
1: Unfortunately, music is is not so specific, but you can pick the the mood that you want to convey for sure. And I guess that's what most of my interest is in is in the emotion that's conveyed by music and how it happens, how it's communicated by the musician. There's the timbre, so just the, the sound quality. In uh, Peter and the Wolf, you have different instruments representing the different characters, so each of those has a different timbre, and that contributes a lot to be, each instrument being able to sort of convey these individual characters.
0: So an example of timbre, you know, just to to contrast it, would be like a piccolo versus a, a French horn or an oboe, which would have a deeper, more granular sound, maybe.
1: Yeah, and I think, I'm not positive, but I think it was a, a bassoon that represented his grandfather. And it's very warm and deep and comforting in a way. It conveys this sort of grandfatherly presence, so...
0: So, so there could be certain instruments that, that we might have cultural associations with, uh, with a more scientific sound, maybe because we've seen a lot of sci-fi movies and things like synthesizers uh, might, might represent a more high-tech timbre, if you will.
1: It's possible, yeah. And you have to be careful not to go too uh, sci-fi cheesy, though, with the synthesizers.
0: Indeed. Now, you mentioned earlier uh, that that you are interested in developmental disabilities, how people with uh, an autism spectrum disorder, for instance, would process music differently than the rest of us. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some of that research?
1: So, previous research, previous to mine, a lot of it has shown that people with autism spectrum disorders, or ASD, their pitch perception, so perception of of different notes, basically, is at least as good as the rest of the population. So this it's an area in which they're not impaired. And it's important to study the areas that they're not impaired in, in addition to the areas that they are impaired in, because if we only study areas where they have problems, you know, we won't get the full picture. So um, that's one reason that I'm interested in studying music. And another one is So music, as we've been talking about, it has this incredible power to communicate emotion. It crosses language barriers, not all cultural barriers, but you can definitely communicate a lot with music across lots of different groups of people. So I wanted to see if people with autism can understand emotion in music more easily than they can understand emotion in other aspects in daily interactions, they have trouble understanding emotions in other people often. So I think music is a good way for us to study their emotion perception in this way that doesn't depend on social interactions and doesn't depend on language and speaking with other people.
0: And so you were able to do this because there are Uh, some auditory similarities between music and speech it looked like some of your uh, some of the the papers that you've worked on that have been published recently um, are they 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 were taking timing as uh, as an emotional cue in speech and also in music and sort of chopping it up, remixing it um, to to break up the initial timing to see if that if that made a difference in how, uh, how people with autism perceived the emotional content of the music, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's something like that. Um, one study that we did that was published recently, uh, we took four piano pieces for, they were Nocturnes by Chopin, and we had a pianist play them expressively, so putting emotion into the piece and we had him record them on this fancy piano that has electronic components in it. And it uh, recorded all of his movements as he was playing the piece. So it recorded how fast he pressed the keys down and also when he played each of the keys. So mainly we're looking at loudness and timing variation. And what we did was we took away all of the loudness and timing variation This left us with sort of a mechanical, robotic piece. We had that version, the mechanical version, and the expressive version, and then we made some versions in between, so one with half the expression that was in the original piece. In addition to this, we made, like you were saying, a version where we sort of scrambled things up, so we took the timing from one note and moved it to another note, and we took the loudness from one note and moved it to another note. And so all of these things were sort of Randomly moved around in the piece. So it still had the same notes and they had the same overall duration because we wouldn't move the durations around too long. So, anyway, it still sounded like the same piece, but just sounded a little odd, kind of like somebody was sort of tripping over the piano or <laughs> really didn't know what they were doing, which is interesting in itself because these variations were put into the piece by the piano player, but when they're put in the wrong place on the wrong notes, it sounds completely wrong. And, and we can tell that. And so we wanted to know if only us, you know, the scientists could tell that this was wrong or if other people actually perceive this as being wrong too. So we tested adults and we tested some children and children with autism also and ask them to listen to these different versions of the pieces and rate how emotional they sounded. The adults were able to take the original version and rate it as the most emotional, and the middle version they rated as a bit less than the original, and then the mechanical, robotic-sounding version, they rated that as even less emotional, and then the random one they rated as the least emotional of all. So. The one with all of the timing and the loudness put in places where it doesn't belong doesn't sound emotional at all. And these were musicians and non-musicians, so it wasn't something that you need music training for. It's just something that you learn over the course of time. So then we had the kids with autism and typically developing kids listen to these pieces. And the typical developing kids were... Similar to the adults, they weren't as good as the adults. So it also showed us that it's something that you learn over time. They hadn't had as many years of being exposed to music, so they just weren't as good at doing the task as the adults. But the kids with autism didn't differentiate at all among among these different pieces. They rated them all as being sort of similarly emotional. A parallel can be drawn between this and speech prosody and prosody of speech is is the music of speech so it's how you convey moods, it's how you convey sarcasm, you know, a question A when you ask a question your voice rises at the end of it and that's part of prosody and there are some studies showing that kids with autism have trouble understanding this in speech so I wanted to sort of make a a musical parallel to that and see if it's specific to the speech or if they also might have trouble sort of understanding this kind of subtle variation in music.
0: So what does it tell you that they, they had the same troubles with the music?
1: It suggests that these the speech prosody and the music expression may be calling on similar brain areas. So... If they have trouble with both of these, perhaps it's because the network of, of brain areas and the parts of your brain that you need to use to understand both of these are overlapping or are, you know, really similar to each other. And this part is is not developing in kids with autism in the same way as it develops in typical kids.
0: So it, it sounds like music al- almost literally speaks to us. It activates those same parts of our brains that that actual speech does.
1: It does. It it activates so much of our brain when you look at scans of people listening to music. There are activations all over the all over the brain. Same with speech. Also, when you look at a scan of someone listening to speech, there are activations all over the brain, and there are definitely areas where the two overlap. There are areas that are specific to speech and areas that are specific for music, but lots of overlap between the two.
0: And it sounds like especially in this emotional processing part of the brain.
1: Yeah, perhaps. We don't know for sure. It's it's a, it's difficult to figure out exactly what the brain is doing just from you know behavioral a few behavioral studies, but it's definitely suggesting that that's the case.
0: I do want to ask you just briefly, how how music gets stuck in our head, you know, when a song just gets in there and won't leave.
1: I can only really say from my own experience. <laughs> but I think Songs that get stuck in my head are ones that I can sing easily or whistle.
0: Can you give an example of something that has been stuck in your head maybe in the last few days?
1: I've had a theme from a symphony stuck in my head. It's not a very uh, catchy or poppy song, so (laughs) I don't know if it would apply.
0: Well, which one is it?
1: It's a Franck symphony in D minor from the the third movement, I think. (laughs) ¶¶
0: Well, Dr. Batara, I want to thank you so much for talking with us at How on Earth.
1: Thank you.